When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide, the podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is... This episode is our Namaste motherfucking 100th episode. Yeah, back in April last year, feels like ages ago, and not ages ago, like life really, we set out to answer the big questions like what's it like to be a national treasure? Can you help yourself with self-help? Is it possible to get rich quick without being a dick? And how many close family members have to die before you get a dog? Since then, with the help of our celebrity guests and experts, we have uncovered loads of not your normal life lessons, but some big ones nonetheless. And to celebrate this momentous of occasions, we're looking back at some of our favourite moments so far. As you will know, well, you'll know this unless you're a brand new listener, in which case, welcome. We're very glad you're here. Um, and also shout out to all our long and loyal listeners, especially those who were there from the very start. I think that's mainly my mum and dad. Hello, mum and dad. So, yes, as you will know, every episode I ask my guests the same three questions, which are what's your favourite joke? What life advice would you give to anyone listening? And the first of the questions I ask each week is what was your namaste mother? fucking life-changing moment and it's that question that is at the heart of today's 100th edition we've had some incredible often never told before moments we've laughed we've cried i've often got my words wrong because i'm menopausal and in this episode we're bringing you some of the stories that have most stuck with us some are career orientated the very moment that someone knew what they wanted to do with their life some are more personal, including advice people have received that completely changed their life. Like when Joan Rivers told me I should start stand-up at the age of 45. She was 81. Pick up those names, Callie. But I'm not the only one whose world was turned upside down by life-changing career advice. Here's my guest from December, Dr. Kevin Dutton. <laughs> Yeah, I've thought about this, and and actually, it was um, it was the mo it was a moment which I didn't know at the time. Um, actually, set me on the road to writing Flipnosis, uh, the book I was telling you about. Um, and when I was a student, um, I had a friend of mine who was a really really big American lad. He was over three hundred pounds. He was a really and he let let's put it this way he wasn't the most athletic of guys either he was three he was massive this guy and he was a wonderful friend of mine and as students undergraduate students we used to go out on the piss as you do you know and we used to spend all weekend on the piss in london 
or wherever. Uh, and there was one Sunday evening where my dad said to me, um, I'll take you both out for an Indian meal. Uh, so anyway, he we were meant to meet in the Indian restaurant, I don't know, let's say six o'clock. And he was sitting there at six o'clock. And I remember being in a pub with my mate. And it was about quarter to six, quarter to seven, saying, oh, I suppose we should go to the restaurant now, because we didn't want to stop drinking, basically. So that was another half an hour to get to the restaurant. So we got to the restaurant about quarter past seven, pissed out of our heads. And my dad's sitting there, my poor old man sitting there, and he was going to, you know, buy the dinner. And we roared into this restaurant drunk. And anyway, he we sat down. And he started saying, you know, you're drinking too much. You're And I just lost it. And I just got up even before the Papadums had arrived. And I remember saying, oh, just fuck off that. I've had enough of this. That's, that's right. And I stormed out of the restaurant and I started making my, I had no idea where I was going to go. And I started making my way to the underground station. I was just going to get on a train, probably go back to the pub. Anyway, just as I was about to put my ticket through the barrier, my mate, it's about 100 metres from the Indian restaurant to the train, to the um, train station, the tube station. My, I heard my mate, my 300 pound mate, huffing and puffing. And he got to the station forecourt and he said, what are you doing? And I said, listen, I've just had enough of him. I'm just going, I'm, I'm disappearing. You know, you, you, I don't care. And he uttered these words to me. I'll never, ever forget, Callie. And he says, Kev, when was the last time you ever saw me run? And I thought, well, never. And he reached his arm out and he said, come on, mate, let's go back to the restaurant. And I was instantly disarmed. I felt all my anger disappear. And I went back to the restaurant, sat down, and we had a great dinner. And I'd never forgotten that moment. Now, my friend sadly passed away a few years ago. Um, so he's no longer with us. But uh, so it's especially poignant, that story. But it's more poignant in the fact that I didn't realise it at the time. But that was a great example, probably the first example I ever came across, personal example of flipnosis, this instant disarming, this kind of persuasion, extreme persuasion, which can work in any circumstance. And again, Callie, it kind of touches on what we are talking earlier, a bit like the Churchill story. It wasn't coming to you from on high saying, listen, you're out of order. You better go back in that restaurant and sort yourself out. And by the way, apologize to your old man. What he did was he lowered himself. It was, when was the last time? Look, look at me, look at me. When was the last time you ever saw me run? Never. Well, the implication is, well, why have I done that? soon as you have that kind of emotion transplant of anger to like all of a sudden it's incongruous as well isn't it remember the principle of incongruity you think well yeah well i haven't your mind's taken off the situation there's a it was it was an extremely humbling um experience for me and i never forgot it so that would be my namaste motherfuckers moment would you I allow love me that? that yeah i love it and a damaste moment where you also got your puppadoms out of it so that is what you call a win-win in life isn't it well i think my dad might have scoffed them all by the time we, we got yeah i was thought restaurant. you were going to end the story so, so i went in and my dad told me to fuck off and uh you know and that's what? how it ended <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah actually that <laughs> Actually, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, um, that's in there. Yeah, I'm going to nick that one as well. Yeah, actually. that's your topper. No, if you need that, that an after that's dinner thing. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm that's taking 12 and a half percent of your after dinner speaking yeah. after this. I'll tell you that for nothing. <laughs>
fantastic story from Dr. Kev there. And his was actually the story that gave us the idea for this 100th episode special. So a big thank you, Dr. Dutton. Some of our namaste moments make you realise where you fit in the world or where you do not, as it was for Tom Reed Wilson. I think, actually, it was it was the moment shortly after everything that happened with the voice and celebs go dating where you see the last thing just about the last thing i did on stage was playing the cat in the hat and i played it at the palace in manchester which is a huge sort of opera house and my best friend came and after the performance he was terribly quiet and so of course like all performers do i was anxiously probing and I said why are you so quiet you didn't think much of it did you and eventually he said you were fine <laughs> that's oh, awful yeah. you were fine but you could have been a third bigger and still not have been too big oh. and I thought god I was straining every sinew I was giving everything and when I moved into telly I found that that medium fit my personality I wasn't too big really or too small mm. you know it just it just fit my natural personality and that was that was a big namaste motherfucking moment because I thought oh bliss you know I don't have to reach further than I could almost reach you know it was a very nice liberating feeling you found your medium thank goodness you yes. weren't born in another period of history where that's the way this medium didn't exist <laughs> imagine if you were in Shakespearean times you'd have had to fill the globe there would have been yes no I'd have had to have grown an inch I, I would didn't all of my guests are at the top of their game, so it's not surprising that many chose Namaste moments about their careers. These next two are from people whose moments led them to discover their true vacations. First Colin Murray and then Stephen K. Amos. This gets to my private personal thing. So there's 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 seismic ones that I probably will never talk about because I'm never going to write an autobiography or anything like that. Why would I? But, um, you know, they've properly changed my life for the worst. But if I stick to my career... Oh God, yeah, yeah, seismic things, but they just—that's it. Everyone has them. This but, is just really hard. This is like telling. <laughs> this is like showing me the apps in the bloody. Do, do you know what's movie. funny though? Because I trust you. If we ever sit and having a drink, I tell you everything, knowing that I could trust you. Yeah, you could definitely trust me. I'm just sad you're not trusting my listeners, but that's okay. Um, but uh, on this, on the career front, there's a really obvious one for me. That seismic, you know, Namaste moment, which was. So England are playing Brazil in the World Cup that was in Korea and Japan, 2002. I'm working at the time as like putting on gigs for unsigned bands, basically local clubs, running clubs. I have one called Stereotype with a girl who was saying Vanessa and a few other things. Um, putting on unsigned bands like uh, Turn, who were brilliant, Snow Patrol at the time, who were signed, but on a very small mm-hmm. label. Really good times, looking back on it. DJing and writing about music. That's basically what I did. You were a man in your 20s then, yeah? I was in my early 20s, yeah. 20s, yeah. And I'd started a music magazine with a guy called Paul McNamee, and we both hadn't mm-hmm. a clue what we were doing. We're in our early 20s. He went on to do brilliant things. He's now, he's current editor of The Big Issue. Um, and had a great time at the NME, but the work he's done as editor of The Big Issue is fantastic. He's such a good journalist brilliant guy um and anyway so so i'm pulling these all-nighters living with my mate scott um and you know bleary eyed getting a little bit of sleep and it was when uh ronald danio lobs lobbed david seaman to win two two one brazil beat england and it was round about that that game was in the morning it was somewhere in that haze of being up for three days solid watching football and um doing whatever then i realized that i was meant to go down for some radio thing that I'd not wanted to do. And the first time they'd done it, 
or whatever it was, I hadn't went to the audition and this was the time I promised him to go. And my mate Scott goes, just go. I said, I've been off for like 36 hours. We literally been drinking all night. And he's like, just go down. It's just the BBC. I lived like literally in the court of Lisbon. Just go down. So I went down. I can't even remember really being there. And that was for the session in Northern Ireland for Radio 1. And that's that's how I ended up with the first radio show. Wow. It was just after or just before, I can't remember, Ronald Daniel Lobb Seaman. I, 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 that's when I did that and got that job. And then I want to know, were you still off your tits life. at that point? Did your namaste motherfucking moment happen under the influence? I don't have much recollection of what happened in that, Take that uh, as a yes. particular thing. Because I would just sit and drink all night. I was a, I was a blitzer. Do you drink now or have you stopped drinking? Well... I've never been an alcoholic. I've, there's alcoholism in my family, so I've seen it. You know, so yeah. I'm not I'm not depending on it. My addiction cigarettes, yeah. which now touch all sorts of wood, seem to just about. You've seen me on the vape here, vaping, right? yeah. but that's down to zero milligram, and I was being okay. for, for the first time. So I think I'm getting there. But that's my that's my thing. Like I wish I wish smoking was healthier. It's just continued. I to know. Do. I used to love smoke. I think a lot of us did. Also, all of us that were working in the kind of yeah. music business in the eighties yeah. and not well, I guess you wouldn't have been in the eighties, but the nineties. A lot yeah. of smoke. A lot of things went on there which weren't good for us. And <laughs> hey, je ne regret rien. Um, but yeah, I um I uh, haven't drank in about fifteen months just to see if I could, and, and uh, I'm not missing it. No, so, but I'm becoming a bit dull, like you You're know. A social pariah. No, no smoking, I barely drink. I no put in a drinking. good account of myself when I did, and I don't know people. Honestly, as soon as you just have one drink, I feel like if you don't drink, they think you're an alcoholic, and that's great. But and it's not great to be one. But it's great if they think that. But as soon as you have one, they're like, "What the fuck's wrong with you?" Do you know I haven't pulled that yet, but I'm absolutely going to do that. Oh, yeah, just is, go quietly. I, I don't drink. Do you not anymore. drink? I don't drink anymore. Not anymore. Oh, then you get just full twitch. respect. Yeah. And then, you get an extra great. bread roll and olive and a lot of respect from people. Brilliant. For that, so. And then you could test the, the people who you were with. You could test the character of those people. Yeah. Because if you if they are under the if they're under the belief that you have a, a serious illness and then you go, I'll just have one. Get me. You could literally just go, get me a double whiskey yeah. and see which one of that group goes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Or which one goes, yeah. That's not a good person. That sorts the men from the board. Right. My namaste motherfucking moment has got to be, I went to see a friend of mine who had emigrated from uh, London to New York because he wanted to be in the bright lights and the big city. And I was visiting him for a long weekend. Uh, and at the same time, a friend of his called Delphi Manley was also visiting. I didn't know her. So we all stayed in his apartment, which was about one block away from the Empire State Building. We're mm -hmm. right in the middle of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And we had this mad weekend and we went to all these little venues and we had brunch where you had bottomless margaritas and we had a laugh. And at the end of the weekend, she was in before I was. And she said to me, Do you know, you are really funny. Have you thought of doing comedy? And I said, don't be ridiculous. You know, we've just had a great laugh. And she went, give me a call. I actually used to run comedy clubs at university. I'm going to run comedy clubs when I get back home to London. I went, oh, okay. And about six months later, I called her up. She remembered me. She took me to my first ever comedy club, which was on Fulham Palace Road. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called the Cosmic Comedy Club. And about three months later, she started a comedy club called the Big Fish Comedy Club and asked me to be the resident MC. Wow. Off the bat, never seen me do stand up before, but had un undeniable 
uh, belief in me. Within six months, she had five clubs running weekly. Wow. I was the resident host for all of them. Yeah. What great training that was. Yeah. And what, I mean, that was, I was like, what? And it's only when I speak to, you know, people who are now household names, but they, they, they laugh at me because back then I was using an A5 pad with jokes written on them. Yeah. And they were seasoned pros going, have you seen this idiot? But they didn't tell me that at the time. But, but you found they, your chops doing that, I guess. And, and MCing, then I found yeah, my voice. Yeah. And emceeing is, I, I prefer emceeing actually to being a sport. I love it. And I just do think it's a brilliant way to sort of home what you do. And if you like dealing with kind of crowd work, it's a brilliant thing. Well, she had, she'd seen you emcee that whole weekend socially. She was like, this guy's funny. <laughs> and uh, mind you, she'd only seen you a few margaritas to the wind. When she saw you sober, she was like, oh, he didn't need a notepad when he was with us. <laughs> For some, the moments came early in their working lives when the imposter syndrome-induced scales fell from their eyes and they realised what they were truly meant to do. Here are some inspiring stories from Ed Byrne, Richard Osman and Sean Walsh. I, I, I mean, I think it would probably be the, the, the last time I ever did an open spot, which was at uh, Jonglers in Camden. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Tim Clark was hosting and it was, I always say, it was like the final scene in a film about a young man who wants to be a stand-up comedian. Because it just, I had, I had, I just had this five minutes down and it was, again, it was quite in your face, aggressive. There was not an ounce of fat on it. It was joke, 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 joke. And it just went so well that uh, they, they, they they put me onto weekends straight away. Um, it, it, it's very hard to tell the story without sounding really, really conceited, though. Go, on, go full asshole on it. Well, there was a moment where the crowd started chanting, we want dead, we want dead. You see, the thing is, when you're an sure, open this spot... this isn't a dream. Uh, this I swear happened. to God, this is what there happened. There are witnesses. They're je- not only... Here's the thing. This is why it was like this final scene of a, of, of the scene of a movie. It's like Mrs. Maisel. I didn't even know this until afterwards the... the, 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 the uh, venue manager told me afterwards that just after I got off stage, the guy who owned the club had phoned about something else. And the guy was on the phone to the owner of the club. And then as an afterthought, the guy said, oh, and how did the open micer do? And it was right then that the crowd were chanting. "We And, and the guy went, guy said, this is the guy said, open the door there, will you? And they pulled open the door and he held up the phone to the crowd chanting, we want Ed, we want Ed. <laughs> And he went, that, that's how the open spot went. And he said, oh, well, I guess we put him straight on to weekends then. So it was, you couldn't write that. What a shame that it was before the days when we would always be recording our stuff on voice notes as open micers so that we can improve on it next time. It's oh, an, no, I, I never recorded my stuff. I recorded myself Because you'd once. have to have a ghetto blaster and it was the early 90s. No, I had a dictaphone. I had a dictaphone. A dictaphone. Yeah, I had a dictaphone. Did you have it next and- to your Filofax? I never had a file of I have a file of facts now, Excellent. but I just use it to keep notes on my planting in the garden. <laughs> that is anyway, the least no, showbiz thing yeah. anyone's ever said on the podcast. <laughs> when I had a dictaphone and I recorded my an open spot I did at the Ball and Banana and I died on my arse and I and that was there. I went and I never taped my open spots after that. Because it was just silence. Because just the one you. time I did, I died on my arse. And even though I'm not superstitious, I just went, right, well, I'm not doing that again. 
I don't mind the taping them. It's the listening back. I find, when you're doing a whole show, do you do you not record yourself and listen back to it then? Because that's the bit that's actually put me off doing another solo show. I hated the listening back and tweaking so much. I, I mean, as I say, it, it was a painful experience listening to my own show whilst driving to Cornwall. Um, but uh, yeah, usually I don't. I don't like to listen back. Okay, but I like I that. Too. I do. I do have, yeah, I do have a record. I, I don't have it anymore, but I did record myself dying on my arse for five minutes at the Ball and Banana, where I got one line, I got one joke, I got one laugh, which was at the end, because I was smoking a cigarette. That's how long ago it was. Mm. And at the end of the set, I said, they say that every cigarette you smoke takes five minutes off your life. It's just a shame you don't get to choose which five minutes. <laughs> and that, that, that was the only reason. Was that an ad lib? That was an ad lib. Yeah, it's a good one. Was. Shame we can't use that anymore, uh, as we <laughs> won't be smoking. Um, I would think it's, it's, it's a tricky one, but that imposter syndrome thing is interesting because obviously I always felt that. And I got a job in telly out of a newspaper. I didn't know anyone who works in TV or anything like that. So I got this job as a researcher uh, on a computer games program for Sky in the early 90s. And uh, I didn't know anything about the world. I was very, very... I, I was at, at 21 I, I was all over the place I said I didn't know anything but I, I turned up in that building I thought oh so this is this is work right this is what people do this is the job uh, and the second people started talking about the TV program we were about to make I just thought oh you don't watch television oh you don't know anything about this oh I spent the last 16 years watching TV and I literally I know the answer to these I, I'll keep it to myself for now because no one likes a smart ass on, on first day. Genuinely thought, ah, this is what you've been training for. You know, this is a job you can actually do. Someone's going to pay you for this. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you just keep your head down, you could probably do this forever. So the, I, I think the, that the moment was seeing how little people who were clearly very successful knew about what they were doing. And I just thought, oh, well, I'm going to fit right in here. I can, uh, I can bring something to the party. And I've always tried to bring something to the party ever since. I've always tried to make someone more money than they pay me. It's all I've ever wanted to do, to do an honest day's work for a, for a, for a proper day's pay. It's also a good um, thing to, for us to tell everybody in terms of a work. Yes, make people more than they pay you and your chances are you'll have a job for as long as you want it. It's interesting that you, um, it, it's, such a, it's such a basic thing, isn't it? That people need to watch TV if they want to work in it. But lots of people who yeah, work in television, think, so. think they're better, they think they're bigger and better than the people they're making the television shows for. And that's where I think you end up not appealing to the mainstream because you're, you're, you're going at it from a theoretical strategic point of view yeah. instead of something that might actually, actually work. So, um, so basically, um, kids watch television for sixteen years, and the world will be your oyster. I think that's the um, the life advice. Well, or play games, or you know, or, or or you know, do YouTube stuff. If you if it's what you love, then you can get you can have a job doing it. So yeah. you know, I was always told to watch less telly when I was growing up, and you think, well, look, look at me now, Mum. Uh, you know, it's you know, the heart wants what it wants, doesn't it? I'm going to go downstairs and tell my son to play more Dungeons and Dragons as soon as we finish this. The moment has to be my mum, when I was 17, taking me to the Comedia in Brighton. Comedy had been my obsession, but I didn't know about these things called comedy clubs. And I didn't know that you could sort of do it and not be famous. The weird logic that I don't really understand that I had, you know, Lee Evans was famous and Jack D was famous. I didn't understand that they came from this place called The Circuit. So when I was 17, my mum took me to the Comedia and Stephen Grant walked out 
and you know what do you do for a living whatever it was they said and he had 250 people in the palm of his hand and you go hang on a second anyone can do this what the fuck and that and that's the choice was made then that was it i kind of thought i was going to be as a kid a film star you know in that, that sort of childish way and then yeah that that's it there's no, that's the one that that's the one but i know i was at comedia last night i looked at the table i said to dave the tech who i've known since i started there and i said that's where i sat and watched Stephen for the first time coming out in a yellow t-shirt and a red julet dressed as badly then as he does now yeah just different bad although maybe not he might still be wearing that i thought it was his cycling outfit but now i'm wondering if it's his stage outfit but yeah so that's that's definitely my number yeah that's it there right there some inspiring stories there from ed Byrne, richard osman and sean walsh namaste motherfuckers for our last work-related Namaste motherfucking moments, we have two powerhouse women, each of whose moments involved them realising their true passion lay elsewhere. This is Aisha Hazarika and Philippa Perry. What would you pick, Aisha, as your Namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? Oh, such a good question. I've thought, I've thought like so long and hard about this. Um, so I think it was probably like post when I left politics and I was really, really heartbroken when we lost the general election and, you know, Ed Miliband resigned and then um, we didn't know what was going to happen with the Labour Party and then Jeremy Corbyn got elected and, you know, I was just like, I can't, this is, you know, anyway, I left politics and I really didn't know what I was going to do with myself and I was 39, 40, about to turn 40, you know, that quite difficult moment in a woman's life where you're like, None of the things I was meant to have done had come good. I had not got married. I had not had children. The one thing I had like invested in was the Labour Party and my love of the Labour Party. And that was all gone. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, what the hell am I going to do? And I got loads of, you know, I was sort of thinking maybe I should just get a corporate job. And I was like, no, no, I do want to do, I want to do something different. I want to use my voice. I want to do something in journalism. I want to use my kind of comedy skills and things. And one day there was this, hilarious kind of moment where I was just on Twitter and two announcements popped up on my timeline one was that George Galloway got given this massive radio show and talk radio Mm -hmm. the next thing on my timeline was that George Osborne just got given the editorship of Mm -hmm. the Evening Standard so I saw these two men called George just suddenly getting all these really big gigs and I was like fuck this I was literally like (laughs) fuck this George Galloway is like a complete, what, what? I mean, I know he's very like kind of location stuff, but I was like, come on, the guy is just like such a charlatan. George Osborne, very respectful of George Osborne, very different politics, but he's not a journalist. He's never edited. He's never had a column, let alone. So I was like, right, be more George. Be more George. I had this total moment. I think I might even tweeted it. And I, I did this thing which had just, I really hustled. I just was like, right, if guys like that with zero experience and whatever can just keep kind of just swanning from one thing to another, I've got to get my hustle on. So I emailed George Osborne. I got his address and he just got, into, he was just got he appointed the thing of the evening. Did standards. you know him from your time? As no, a I didn't. Advisor. I'd never met him in my mm-hmm. entire life. He'd been my mortal enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because of course, you know, he was preparing David Cameron for PMQs and mm-hmm. I was preparing Ed and Levan and we were like ripping each other up. We were like two tribes going to war. Mm-hmm. I did know his special advisor and I messaged her and I was like, I need to, I need to get in contact with George Osborne. And I, I was writing a book about PMQs at the time. So I was like, I, I want to ask him for an interview. And I said at the end of my email, you've just got this massive gig being editor of the Evening Standard. I think you've got to freshen up your um, roster of columnists. I know I don't have the same politics as you. I know from a different, really different background from you, but I think you should give me a go because, you know, you, you've got this big gig. Spread it around a bit. And he messaged me back, like quick as a flash. He said, yes, I'll do your interview about your Prime Minister's Questions book. But then he was like, uh, I can't, I can't believe you just, you know, he was, he was quite, I think, taken aback. He was just like, I can't, you know, the idea that I'm going to start like ripping up my roster of columnists, I haven't even got in there. That is like, no, I can't, absolutely can't. He was like, I'll have a think about it, but I can't, absolutely not. Am I going to, so I was like, all right, well, that was, I've just made a bit of a tit of myself. And just um, then the day before he started as editor of the Evening Standard, I got a message from the Evening Standard saying the new editor would like to, like you to write a column in the, paper on his first day and that was one column I'd done a few kind of columns before but they were just sort of quite temporary things mm-hmm. and I'd said to him I want a regular column a regular column in your newspaper that you've just been given the editorship of and I got it and, and fair that- play to George Osborne to be fair so he took that with him lodged it and did something with it so he's just gone right up in my estimation um that's quite the fucking hustle Aisha fair play to you <laughs> I, know. I don't know if I'd have the confidence to do it now to be I honest I think I'm a hustler but I'm like yeah good on you I'm wondering what my hustle is going to be after we finish this well yeah I'm not a very much of a drama queen I don't have this I tend to have a sort of gentle curve me rather than a wow um uh I think if I have to choose one, it would be when I was in therapy and I was about, I was about, um, how old was I? Nearly 50, getting up to 50. And my analyst said to me, um, there are two types of therapists, he said. They're the ones that go to workshops all the time and take notes. And the ones that give workshops and write books. And you, young lady, he said, because he's a little bit misogynist, you, young lady, are in the wrong group, he said. You need to stop going to all these continuing professional developed things and start running them. I thought, because I really trusted him. So, you know, when other people say, oh, you're good, you just think, no, I'm not. They don't know the real me. But after a few years, he really did know the real real me so I really took that in and then I I gave a uh, I gave a workshop on PDSD and dissociation <laughs> I never looked back <laughs> sort of like you know start that sort of started me having a public profile I suppose amongst psychotherapists at least um so yeah that was a kick up the arse a bit like Joan Rivers saying to you do stand up he gave me a kick up the arse and said you can stop learning and start teaching now. I thought, oh, okay. And yeah, that was that was quite big. Well, I think we're all pretty I mean, glad that moment happened. So is he still around, that that person? Yeah, he is moaning a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see him uh, as a client anymore. Um, 
if I bump into him, he's, he's usually going, oh, me back. Oh, it's got, I can't give up work yet because I haven't got enough money. Yeah, moaning a lot. <laughs> he likes moaning, it's fine. You're a magnet for men talking about engineering and their backs. So that's um, a, dubious, <laughs> a dubious life skill. So, so lucky. <laughs> Blessed. But not all of our stories are career orientated. For Helen Russell, her moment came with a move of location. I love this. I think for me, it would have to be, as much as I love London, it would have to be leaving London and just moving to rural Denmark because suddenly I, I vanished and, and I'd been climbing the kind of the slippery career ladder and trying to do all the right things to be successful in, in journalism. I was at Marie Claire and I tried to do all the things that I thought you were meant to do and I wasn't that happy. And then suddenly I was, I was nowhere. I had no, nothing. I knew no one. And I just sort of started writing properly, giving fewer fucks and writing with my own voice. And that, that really helped and made the difference to me. What was it about moving to rural Denmark that allowed you to, I guess the noise and the bustle of London was turned down or silence, but the fact you found your own, some people de-self a bit when they're not surrounded by friends and the things they know, but it sounds like you found yourself a bit more. I think I'm quite impressionable and I'm quite, um, I was very competitive in my old life. Mm -hmm. So I'd be looking at what other people were doing and suddenly well, maybe competitive is the wrong word. I would just feel inadequate. Like, mm-hmm. You see all these great people as there are bustling around London. And I just thought, well, I can't do that. I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not good enough. And then suddenly it was just me and some trees. And I thought, oh, well, I could probably write better than a tree. I have a go. So it was just more liberating. I like that as the bar. I can write better than a tree. That might help me get on with my <laughs> book. Thank you for that. And for Rosie Jones, her moment was very personal when she decided now was the time to, well, let me let her tell you. That, that's an interesting one because I, I feel like we talked a lot about several moments, like when I realised that I could use my slow speech to my advantage, that felt like a massive moment. But I'm actually gonna say probably the first night I kissed a woman. So it was a very conscious decision. I was 26. I was living in London and I went out with my best friend who's a gay guy and we went to a gay bar and I said to him, Nick, I'm gay. And he went, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, and I said, I'm, I'm gonna kiss a girl tonight. Um, and he was like, okay, what's your type? And I was like, little, fam, brunette, yes, please. And Nick was like, what, her? 
And we both looked at the bar and there was a little fan there, and I was like, yes, yes. And I think I was filled with so much confidence from telling my best friend Nick and him being so supportive. It was like a movie, like I went up to her, got her a drink, we danced, then we had a lovely snog all night and I mean, I was so drunk at that point. My phone had died. She wrote her number on my hand and I woke up and half the numbers. Oh, Rosie. Yeah, so like, I don't even know her name and like, but... To me, in hindsight, that made that night even better because we didn't have a maybe awkward date or it didn't fizzle out in my head. She can always be that one girl who ignited my gay journey and from that point I think I started coming out to more and more people, I started comedy, I started dressing differently, I started feeling more confident in who I was and I think it was that moment in that club just a lovely kiss with a very fit girl. (laughs) Well if she's listening to this podcast when it goes out Rosie and if you end up getting married I expect to be at the top table, all right? The man must stay fucking at top table. One of our guests, Deborah Meaden, chose a namaste motherfucking life-changing moment that was actually more of a near-death experience. And it's quite an incredible story. And in terms of your, I mean, what, there's so many things to pick from your incredible life to date, but if you had to pick your life-changing namaste motherfucking moment, Deborah, which would you pick? Oh, see, that I find really hard in my business life because um, I've got thousands of them and I don't remember any of them. Um, but but we, we, Paul and I used to travel a lot and I might have misunderstood the question, but I, um, I, was, I was trying to decide whether it was being caught in a military coup in Argentina and having to jump into the back of a cab, bribe a taxi driver to jump us in the back of a club and get us out of the airport because it was surrounded by soldiers, um, which uh, which was a 
quite a moment, <laughs> quite a moment. Um, or whether it was when I we were out trying to tranquilize an elephant that had been shot in Kenya. And uh, and the Land Rover, literally the driver turned to me and said, we, we were right on the edge of a precipice on a on a, a cliff edge and uh, and the Land Rover tipped and he said we're going over and uh and and it was it was it was absolutely staggering we didn't obviously go over um because all of the guys in the back of the Land Rover including Paul my husband had the sense to sort of lean out as if they were on a yacht you know lean back so to, so we could get the Land Rover um back onto firm ground um but it was really interesting interesting because you never know how you're going to be in those situations you are you know I think would I be a panicker um but this guy literally turned to me and said I think we're going over and I just said okay what what do I do he just said because we had a tranquilizer gun in there he said just just put the gun hold, take hold the gun away from you um and it, and it was all very calm <laughs> it was all right oh we're going over <laughs> In slow motion, with and and you were out tranquilizing. What what were you doing out there in the first place? I mean, you had a tranquilizer gun. You, why were you you in Kenya? Why was I there? So I'm a trustee of a charity called Tusk. That's an African wildlife conservation charity. I was visiting some of the projects, and we got a call in saying um, the only way we could get around was by helicopter because we were right up on the northern rangelands. Um, and we got a call in saying there was an elephant that had been shot and it was it was called Mountain Bull, a very famous elephant, very important elephant in terms of its grazing patterns and, and trying to um, create grazing corridors. And uh, could they borrow our helicopter to, to um, uh, try to herd him and uh, tranquilize him and pump some antibiotics into him? which of course we said yes. So we happened to be caught up in this whole thing. But as we landed, I I jumped in the Land Rover with a guy who was tranquilized, who had the tranquilizer gun. Um, and all of the guys, the other guy, you know, including Paul jumped in the back. So I was in the cabin with the driver and all the guys were uh, sitting in the back. And as I say, if it hadn't been for them, it was interesting actually. That's <laughs> no a test name. of a marriage, isn't it? If you're like, you, you lent the wrong way, you dickhead. Well, it's time to well, it was very interesting because there were five or six people in the back one of them jumped out and the others stayed on board and lent out and I just thought it was a really interesting lesson in what happens when the chips are down and you genuinely think that's it one of them had jumped off but not your Paul not my Paul no, no. and you couldn't jump out because you were in the front so we I don't know what would happen the gun. You... yeah exactly you were literally at so the front I don't it. know if that was what you were looking for that, in a moment but, I'd uh, say that's pretty goosebumpy as a moment what how, how did it play out for the elephant that well I'm sorry you asked so it played out well in that instance he was tranquilized pumped full of antibiotics and lived for another three years and then I got a call saying you probably um would want to know Deborah that mountain bull was poached Ooh, um yeah and he was a magnificent huge tusker so wow. yeah my son, if he listens back to this, which is very unlikely uh, because he obviously doesn't listen to the things I do. He's a zookeeper and works a lot in conservation. So he will oh, right, he would right. kick me for asking that question because he would. Have well, he might know answer. about it. He, he was quite a famous elephant. He would know the answer for sure. Now, that's an incredible story. Just to circle back quickly on the um, the coup, that was um, you weren't saving animals out in Argentina. Was that more of a pleasure trip where you got caught up in a coup at the airport? That was a back a semi backpacky pick uh, a trip and um, Buenos Aires is the uh, it, so it's so Argentina operates a hub so everything goes back by Buenos Aires and we literally 
Um, I we were down in where were we? Iguazu Falls, and we were going down to um, watch whales down on the um, uh, peninsula, the Valdez Peninsula, and uh, and we literally landed checked our baggage in and then all of these army helicopters um landed and we thought oh no 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 that's not good um and it was a military coup by one of the generals this is quite a while ago so one of the generals from the Falkland Islands um from the conflict and we just thought you know what being English in this airport right mm. now is probably not a good idea so we bribed a taxi driver and we literally were hunkered down in the back of his cab sort of shooting through the roadblocks so uh, that was quite a hairy moment. Blimey. I thought you might have been over there learning how to do the actual cha-cha-cha um, over or doing the tango. I thought you might have been part of your strictly dance training, but no. Oh, no, no. Was that, was, that, was, that was many years ago. I think they stopped having they were having them, they were having coups regularly, to be honest. Um, but we didn't know that. And and also now it was it was all fine. But of course, in the time, you don't actually know how it's going to unfold. No, of course you, know, you don't. Yeah, that the the folly, also the folly of sort of relative youth, where you just think you are invincible and then you get yeah. into these scenarios and think, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not. Um, and you sound like you love, tra- do you still travel, Deborah? Do you still do lots of travel? We do. I mean, I've got a bit of a conflict because um, we used to travel an awful lot, but I've got a bit of a conflict because I won't take that yeah. many long haul flights. Yeah. We haven't taken a long haul for about six years mm. now. We're going to, we're going to Antarctica this um next next winter we're going to antarctica but i'm rationing my uh my long-haul flights maybe get the bbc to invest in sort of the deborah meadens version of pole to pole and get you by as much as they possibly can across land around the world that'd be a good show i'd watch it johnny walker managed to combine both the personal and the professional i think it probably were in terms of career in terms of life changing it would be the moment of the ultimatum from the garage manager and my transition from being a DJ, uh, being a car salesman and potential Formula One world champion, of course, uh, to becoming a DJ. That was quite a moment. And the other one really was um, the birth of my children. And they were both born at home, even the first one, which normally is advised against. And we'd read an article, I read an article in the Daily Mirror about Frederick Laboye, a French gynecologist who pioneered this whole different way of women giving birth where it would be very much in the dark and not complete darkness but certainly darker than uh, bright lights in a in a hospital ward or theater um, also very quiet very gentle and the umbilical cord shouldn't be cut until it starts pulsing so in other words you let the baby's lungs take over getting oxygen uh, and so then the cord stops pulsing and then then you cut the cord so I was in the room with my wife being a witness to all of this uh, and seeing this new birth arrive the arrival of a, of a of a baby into the world was that was a namaste moment most definitely and again with my daughter Beth when she was born and last but definitely not least there was Danny Wallace whose namaste motherfucking life-changing moment was hard to categorise for producer Mike, who God knows does love a list. So we're going to just let Danny speak for himself. Well, I was thinking about that, and there, there have been a, there've been a few. There have been a few along the way. But for me, there was a, just a lovely moment that sparked something very special, which was when I got my first joinee. The first person to join joined me. Um, and I just thought, this is, this is something. Even if it's just me and this bloke, it's something. 
and it led to something um, very special. People often ask me what is my favorite project that I've done, and I find that almost impossible to answer um, because each has taken on a life after the book ends, you know? Um, in, in, in some ways, and this sounds very cliched, but it's where the story begins is when the book ends mm -hmm. because it then becomes interactive because you can meet the people that I've told you about. And in fact, all these meetings of joinees have happened um, uh, for the last 18 years or whatever, and they've all met through this book. And that's a good moment for me as well because in all that time and with all these thousands of people, um, many of them have ended up getting together. Um, many have split up, but many are still together. And you go from that picture of that guy to me now walking into a pub in central London sometime in December and looking to my right and seeing there's a whole room that's full of children that have been born because of the book, because their parents came out to a join me meetup, they met, they fell in love and they started a family. And now all these kids all know each other. Um, oh, mate, I'm getting goosebumps now. It's great. Isn't and it? I don't know what they tell their children, you know, uh, or like who I am. Yeah, we signed uh, up to a knocking shop masquerading yeah. as a social experiment and then <laughs> exactly. you came along. Exactly. So um, that's always nice. And um, yeah, and so that for me is a moment. You go from that passport photo to that room full of kids. Yeah. Well, that's a very beautiful. That might be in the, in the league table of Namaste motherfucking moments. You're right up there, I would say. Namaste, Danny's moment. Not only life-changing, but life-creating too. I do spend about half of my time crying at the moment, but Danny's story was definitely one that set me right off. In a good way, Danny, we love you. So that, you wonderful namaste motherfuckers, is it. If you've enjoyed these life-changing snippets and want to hear more, please do go back and listen to the first 99 shows in their entirety. I mean, you don't have to listen to all 99 of them all through, um, or not in one go. I mean, see, it's kind of like a Netflix binge, but in your ears. Um, they are really, really brilliant conversations. Uh, not so much because of me, but because our guests are bloody fantastic. And most of all, a huge thank you to all of our listeners. We are especially grateful to everyone who takes the time to rate and review us, and of course, delightfully to recommend us too. If you haven't reviewed us yet, why not do it right now? Go on, it only takes two minutes, but only if you're going to be nice. We're 100 today. The king isn't going to send us a telegram, so you are as good as it's going to get for us. And that is it for our episode 100. Thank you so, so much for listening. We will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, with a cracking 101st episode when I will be speaking to Stuart Heritage. I'm trying to track down famous bald people to ask about like how they coped with it themselves. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. Oh, and a big shout out to the wonderful Anna Potts, our brilliant guest liaison. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Stay motherfucker!